Nothing you can know that isn't known. Nothing you can see that isn't shown. Nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. It's easy. All you need is love. Love, love is all you need. John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote that song in 1967 in the height of the sexual revolution in America and in Europe. All the world needed was more love, Lennon wrote. All the world's problems would be solved if we just loved. Friends, we often seek to express love in merely emotive terms. Our world, in particular our recent culture, has been seeking to grasp what true love is. Seeking to redefine love in a way that suits their own personal needs rather than the needs of others. Love has been changed into something that is about self more than about the object of our love. As music dominates the landscape, our musical preferences across the board, whether you're into rock music or whether you're into country or somewhere in between, from Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night to the Beatles' The Long and Winding Road, to from Elvis's Love Me Tender to Queen's crazy thing, little thing called love. Or Stevie Wonder's I Just Called to Say I Love You. Or Whitney Houston's big hit in the 90s, I Will Always Love You. Songs have sought to define what love is. We, we listen to these songs because they give expression to how we feel. But as you and I both know, love is more than emotion. It goes deeper and beyond. And sadly, so often in our, con- in our current cultural climate, because love is defined merely in emotive terms, merely in I have fallen into love and I have fallen out of love. You've seen marriages crumble when spouses say things like, I don't love them anymore. But biblical love is not mere emotional love. It's, it goes beyond the emotional state. Something deeper that lyric cannot express. It is objective. It is based upon objective truth. Biblical love moves from emotion to intellect. It's based on belief and knowledge. And as we'll see this morning, that objective truth moves into action. Biblical love is a verb, not a noun. Biblical love is displayed in the action of God's love for us in Christ. And so as Christians, we don't read John 3.16, For God so loved the world, as if it's an emotion that God had. But rather, we read it that God loved the world by doing something. Namely, giving His own Son. So that only as we look to the cross of Christ will you and I find a true and accurate picture of love. In fact, there is no other genuine picture of love beyond the cross of Jesus Christ. A picture that goes beyond emotion to to, to action. 
A picture that goes beyond emotion to a costly sacrifice where the true love of God is put on display for all the world to forever see. Over the last two weeks, we have seen the great transformation of the believer. We have learned how as Christians, we are to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And Paul here in chapter 5, in verses 1 and 2, doesn't begin a new theme as your verses might lead you to believe, but rather seeks to summarize and transition to something not entirely new, but, but somewhat new. Paul here is, is summarizing the points that he has made beginning all the way back in verse 17 of chapter 4. Paul summarizes his point in these verses. So let's look at them now. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We could simply summarize these two verses by saying, Christians are to imitate God by walking in love. Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, are to imitate God by walking in love. In love. That when you and I are loving one another in biblical ways, we are mimicking God more than any other way. And so Paul here in our text outlines two practical ways we are to imitate God. First, we are to imitate God by reproducing the family likeness. As Christians, we are to reproduce our Father's image all over the world. And secondly, in way of application of doing that, we are to imitate God by relentlessly loving other Christians. We are to reproduce the family likeness by relentlessly loving other Christians. These two points we want to consider this morning in our, in our text. Notice again, look at what Paul writes there in chapter, chapter 5 in verse 1. Be imitators of God. As beloved children. The first point that we notice in our, in our text is that our behavior is in direct correlation with who we are. Our behavior does not define us. Our position defines our behavior. Let me say that again. Our position defines who we are, not our behavior. That is, that God declares who you are not by what you do, but by who he says, or rather, rather what he has done for you. As Christians, we have a new relationship with God. We are his children. No more could you become the, father, the son of your parents or the daughter of your parents than you can become a son or daughter of God. No more could you become what you are today apart from God's adopting work of you in Christ. Now, for us to better understand this, we need to kind of turn the clock back a little bit. Uh, so if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, because I don't have much interesting things to say, but the Bible does. So let's look at it. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, I want you to just notice, we're going all the way back to the beginning. And since I know, know you remember everything I preach, 
Um, I know this is kind of not necessary, but we'll do it anyways uh, for, for the ones that weren't paying attention. Um, look at chapter 1 and verse 2. Look at what Paul writes. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, as I preached that sermon, I showed you that this was intentional on Paul's part. Paul does not call him his father. He doesn't say Jesus' father, but he intentionally calls him our father. And notice in verse 5, he continues this theme of the father of God. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Contained within this large passage of scripture, uh, Paul teaches us that adoption is the work of God in Christ, whereby we are invited into his family. We become full, legitimate, card-carrying members of God's family. Uh, We are not just uh, servants, you know, that are allowed to kind of hang around the house, but we become members of the household of God. Now, I want you to notice a few things about our adoption, because if you don't have a right understanding of adoption, then you're going to be all messed up when you get to chapter five and verse one, when it says imitate God as beloved children. First, I want to point out that our adoption is by God's electing purposes. This means that it was his idea and not ours. It's something that is grounded in eternity, and it's not something that you can earn. Second, adoption is possible only because of the work of Christ. You are adopted because, as chapter 2 makes clear, you're in union with Jesus. Meaning that you get all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities of Jesus. You You are looked by God the Father as his son, just as Jesus is. The third thing we learned about adoption is that it reflects the grace of God. Adoption is by grace alone and not by works. It reminds us continually of God's grace. Friends, it is a a tremendous thing. Uh, We should not really take it lightly that we are God's children. This is a tremendous thing, particularly as we think about what we once were. As Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, That we were strangers and aliens. But now we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In other words, we were on the outside of the house banging on the door. And God was saying, get lost, you're not welcome. But by grace, he said, come in. Well, as we continued our study through the letter, Paul has continually, repeatedly left little breadcrumbs for us. So that when we got to chapter 5, we would understand his point. Repeatedly throughout this letter, he uses words like inheritance or the father of glory or or jumping ahead to chapter three. He says this, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Again, Paul is using this intentional language to teach us who we are and how that has a direct correlation to how we live. In other words, those who have trusted in Christ are in a new relationship with God. You are a child of God if you've repented and trusted in Christ. That's who you are. That's your identity. By contrast, in chapter 2, Paul described us as before Christ, as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. That's who we were. We were sons of disobedience. We were children 
especially known for the fact that God's wrath was against us. That we were sons most identified by the characteristics of our father, the devil. Moreover, in chapter 5, we'll see next week that he warns us that those that continue in unrepentant sin are are sons of disobedience and not sons. Or or as we heard in the passage in 1 John in chapter 3, that see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and, and so we are. Jesus regularly uses this language in the Gospels as he teaches the, the disciples, doesn't he? The Lord's Prayer, we know it well. Our Father, which art in heaven. That has a very significant meaning. No one called God Father. That wasn't a regulative, regular practice in Jewish culture. This was a significant game changer as Jesus was teaching his disciples that God truly is our Father. Friend, I wonder this morning, what evidence do you see in your life that you are a child of God? You see, we must begin with our position in Christ before we move on to how we live. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to once say that right doctrine lives, leads rather to right living. If you have a right understanding of who you are in Christ, it gives you the motivation to obey who he is. Many of us suffer from right living, I think, precisely because of what Lloyd-Jones is leading on to. We don't study our Bible. We don't study doctrine. We're like, we, we have this kind of aversion to learning doctrinal truth. Brothers and sisters, doctrine is what leads to holiness in our lives. If we don't properly understand who we are, we kind of get off into legalism or antinomianism, which is sort of anti-law kind of behavior. Paul is clear who we are should determine how we live. This is why he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Christian, do you see yourself as a child of God this morning? I pray that you would see that you are God's child. He loves you. He cares for you. You are no longer a child of wrath, but you are now a child of God. We can worship and rest in this new relationship. In the midst of our trials, we know that our God loves us. Our Father loves us. And every trial that He, that He, that He, that He, I want you to get this theological truth that he takes you by the hand and walks you into. He does it because he loves you. Because he loves you. Perhaps this morning you didn't have a father who loved you. Perhaps you had a father who was abusive. Was never there for you. Friends, you can know this morning that that you have a father in heaven who loves you and cares for you and will keep you safe. Who you are in Christ defines how we live. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to warn you with these words that Paul writes, that you are still a son of disobedience and a child of wrath. This is how the Bible describes each one of us apart from Christ, that we rightly deserve God's wrath. But God in his amazing love for us sent his son, as we'll think about in a moment, the man, Jesus Christ. And his son lived a perfect life for us. The life we should have lived. And and he died the death we deserve. The death that we rightly deserve. And he, 
He was sacrificed in our, plot, in our place. He died so that God could forgive us, so that his father's wrath would be satisfied. The Bible tells us that God raised him from the dead for our justification. So that those who repent of their sins and turn from their sins and trust in Christ will be saved and be adopted into the family. Friend, if you trust Christ today, you too can become a family member with us and dwell for all of eternity in the household of God. I want us to consider here in verse 1, before we move on to verse 2, four implications. Four implications that Paul lays out in this text. Number one, adopted children intrinsically desire to be like their heavenly father. Adopted children intrinsically desire to be like their heavenly father. Stay with me with this thought. Paul writes again, be imitators as beloved children. The word that Paul uses there, as or like, could be interpreted this way. Therefore, be imitators of God because you are beloved children. In other words, because of who we are, it affects the desires in us. When, when we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, we get this new desire because we've got a new daddy. We've been brought into a new family and we want to start acting like this daddy. We all know this well, don't we? A son wants to be like his father. You see, God has hardwired it into us. We've been created in his image. He's made us to want to be like our fathers. We've all had that realization as adults, right? Where we wake up one day, as much as we fought it, we look in the mirror, I'm just like my mom. I'm just like my dad. It happens. Whether you intentionally do it or unintentionally. Oh, friends, if you wondered why baby dolls are so popular among little girls, they want to be like their mommies. And some of the boys want to be too, all right? Friends, we want, we have this desire to be like our parents. It is in us. And when the Spirit tells us and cries in us, as Paul wrote in Galatians 4, that, that the Spirit dwells in us and it cries out, Abba, Father. That's the Spirit's work telling you, you want to be like your Father in heaven. As adopted children, we should be like him. We should want to be like the father. Friend, I wonder, do you desire to be like him? Do you even have that desire to be like God? The second implication in this text is that adopted children reflect the character of their heavenly father. Notice what Paul writes. He says, be imitators of someone, right? Be imitators of God. Paul, Paul's exhortation isn't to imitate God just in anything, but to specifically imitate him in his character, right? Uh, this is similar to what, the, uh, what Moses writes in Leviticus 19. Be holy as I am holy. Uh, be holy, be, be like me in my holiness, in my character. Because they were his people, they were to imitate his character. In other words, they, in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was holy as God was holy... They were a sign displaying God's character among the world. This is what Paul says and writes in Ephesians 1.4, that the purpose of our redemption is that we would be holy as God is holy. 
that we would be like God. In Christ, God has created us after his likeness in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, we are a new creation, and the model, uh, the, the structure of that is God's character. As a child reflects the character of his earthly father, so you and I should reflect the character of God the Father. Well, this is similarly what Paul writes to other churches when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, or follow me as I follow Christ. As Paul faithfully followed Christ, he called others to follow his example. Jesus kind of taught his disciples this imitation pattern. In Matthew 5, 48, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, the Christian life is about being little mini-me's of God. As I indicated a few weeks ago, the, the word Christian literally means little Christ. Little imitations of Jesus running around. Now, we realize that Paul isn't exhorting us to imitate God in everything, but in his communicable attributes, those attributes which we can obey. In other words, we'll never be omniscient as God is omniscient, all-knowing, right? That's, that's not, we're, <laughs> don't do that, that's silly, uh, right? Uh, but to imitate him in his communicable attributes, those attributes that we share, like love and patience and kindness, like the things we'll consider in a moment. We are to consider then what we say, what we worship, and how we relate to others as clear indicators of how we imitate God. If you're a Christian this morning, I want you to reflect on this question. Does your life reflect the character of God? Are you holy as he is holy? Do you desire to be holy as he is holy? Do you love the things he loves? You know, God loves people. Do you love people? Great question to think about daily. In this circumstance or that situation, am I imitating the character of God? Do my words, my actions, my love reflect the character of a holy God? Fathers, this is, I think, particularly applicable to you. One of the greatest ways you imitate God is by being a good father the way he is a good father. This is why one of the most heinous sins is for fathers to neglect their fatherhood. You see, it's one of the greatest ways you imitate God because he's a father. So fathers, let us imitate God's character in that way. Adopted children reflect the character of God. Third thing I just want to point out to you that adopted children, and this is sort of an implication of the text. I want you to see it. Look again at verse 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. It's plural. Sorry to kind of bust your bubble, but there's more. You're not an only child in the family of God. All right. There's no spoiled, you know, one child deal going on here. All right. We are children together. We are in a new family relationship with other children. We are now brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy, young Timothy. He says, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to treat the, the women in the church. Don't be lusting after them, but treat them as sisters. Because that's what they are. And the men as fathers and brothers. 
This means that our adoption into the family of God greatly affects how you view those sitting around you this morning. They are your brothers. They are your sisters. That blood that runs through them, that spirit that indwells them is deeper than your biological brothers and sisters. Let me guarantee you that. This is why you could travel anywhere in this world, anywhere. You pick the place and you go and you gather with a group of Christians on the Lord's Day. And you may not know the language that's being spoken, but I will guarantee you, I will bet the house on it, that if you walked into that room, you will feel at home. I guarantee. Guaranteed. Because you are brothers and sisters. Uh, Friends, we are a family. Catonsville Baptist Church is a family. This means we ought to treat each other like a family. Now, I know you're used to treating your earthly family members really poorly, but that doesn't mean you do the same to your heavenly family, all right? In fact, I want you to hear this point, that when we don't love our other family members, it actually confuses us it actually makes it strange because we wonder are you really a family member well we'll get to that point here in just a moment implication number four adopted children persistently forgive others now as i'm thinking about this text i want you to back up to the verse these chapter divisions are strange and we kind of think okay we've left chapter four behind and we've moved on but but no paul here look at verse 32 let's read this again Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You see the connection? Uh, Paul here is saying that one of the greatest ways that you imitate God every day is by your kindness, compassion, and forgiveness of others. Our hearts must swell with the same kind of, of tenderheartedness in persistently forgiving others that God has shown to us. Forgiveness flows from the heart that's been forgiven. If you are unwilling to forgive, maybe you've never experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ. That was the point we considered last week. That since God has graciously forgiven us in Christ, that we should extend the same gracious forgiveness of others. That we are to to work persistently for reconciliation. As I pointed out last week, that nothing works against the unity of the church like unforgiveness. Nothing will destroy the church more than when we are unwilling to forgive one another. As a congregation, we must celebrate reconciliation and encourage one another to forgive. If you know a brother or sister that is not willing to forgive another, you take it upon yourself to encourage them to forgive. To encourage them. Give it to God. Christ has died for those sins. Friend, adopted children persistently forgive others. Well, these are just some of the ways that you and I imitate God. That we are to resemble that family likeness. Just as we resemble our family likeness here on earth, so also we should resemble the family likeness of our Father who is in heaven. Well, Paul goes on in verse 2, I think, to give clarity to what he means. More than my very feeble attempts, Paul makes very clear what he has in mind in verse 2. That we are to imitate God by relentlessly loving other believers. Look at what Paul writes here. 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I want you, I'm going to argue here why I believe this is application of verse 1. Two points. First, notice the and. And in the English language often only is used as a conjunction. Joining two ideas, though could be dissimilar, apples and oranges. But here in this language, Paul is using it as a, as a means to describe what he's talking about. Here's why we know that. Notice the parallelism between verse 1 and verse 2. Notice, walk in love as Christ loved us. Notice the parallelism between be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children, as Christ loved us. In other words, we could, we could interpret, the, we could translate it this way, and some other evangelical translations have done this to help us. We could say it this way, imitate God. By walking in love. Imitate God by walking in love. He's continuing this theme of walking, isn't he? It's the theme that he began back in chapter 4 and verse 1 when he said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, this is exactly what he meant. A worthy walk is a walk in love. A worthy walk is when you and I, our lives are characterized by love for one another. That word walking, I remember in the 90s it was really popular. They would ask you all the time, how's your walk with Jesus? Uh, in other words, the, the idea in the, in, the, in the Bible is character. Is your life characterized by love for others? This is, of course, what Jesus taught his disciples, right? Uh, we all know it well. The world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? It's by our love that we display. In other words, our love for others, for other believers particularly, is what marks us off from the world. It's how we know that we are in a family. We we know the family members. Now, we don't have like badges that we wear. Remember when we used to do that in church and you put your name tag on? That was weird. Um, uh, right? We, we don't have name tags that say, like, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, we don't have, you know, little stamps that go on our foreheads. or We don't have clothing that we wear that marks us off. What the Bible says, what Jesus teaches his disciples, is that the world will know that you are my disciple because I'm going to stamp you with my love that will then be displayed in you. This, of course, is how we also know who's not in the family. See, we don't have a test that you know, we pass out. You see, the test is love. This is why John, in that text we heard earlier, was so strong and emphatic. I mean, you hear what he said? He said, look, if you hate your brother, you're not a Christian. If you hate, you're not a believer. You're not born again. You're not a child of God. Don't be confused. If you are hateful towards other people, you have no confidence or assurance, he says. And so the one way that we assess who's in and who's out is by our love. Does that individual have the love of Christ displayed in him? Friends, you see why now it's so damaging to the the body of Christ when we don't forgive one another, when we don't love one another? See, it breeds confusion. We don't know who's who, who's a sheep and who's a goat. We're so confused. Because sheep should love. Goats hate. Friends, this is the great contrast between who we once were 
and who we are now. I mean, so many of you I know have shared testimony about how before you came to Christ, you were one of the most hateful people in the world. You were like the Apostle Paul who once hated Christians. He wanted to see them eradicated from the face of the earth. This is the great change that happens in the heart of the believer. When our hearts are regenerate, they begin to love in ways that even the Grinch couldn't love. New hearts. The world's greatest love, Paul says, is put on display for us to see. Paul gets clear here, doesn't he, in verse 2? When he tells us to walk in love, he says, now I don't want you to walk away from this verse and and come to the equation and begin to fill it in, to kind of take that word love and, and bring in your own baggage to it. But he clarifies what he means by walking in love. He writes again, as Christ loved us. The standard of our love is to be the love of God in Christ. The cross then becomes the model for our love for others. But not only is Christ's love for us the model of love, it's the motivation of love. We love, as John wrote, because Christ loved us. Or as Jesus in that same text in John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. Now that's before Jesus goes to the cross. That's before he even ascends Galgaha. He, he says, I want you to love how, how I've loved you up to this point. And will continue to love you as I go to the cross. This is why you must study the Gospels and read them regularly. To see how foolish and dumb and silly the disciples were. And how patient and kind and gracious Jesus was. How many times he forgave. How many times he was patient when the disciples were begging him. The atonement of Christ, then, is the greatest display of God's love. Look with me again at what Paul writes. What did Christ do? He loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul has in mind here the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for our sin. The innocent offered up in the place of the guilty. The sinless life of Christ for the sinner. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Peter O'Brien, commenting on this passage here in chapter 5, writes, Christ handing himself over to death for his people was the supreme demonstration of his love for them. Because he is both the ground and the model of their love, costly, Sacrificial love is to be the distinguishing mark of their lives. To serve others in this way is not only to please God, it is also to imitate both God and Christ. Christ's atonement was costly. It was no cheap or tawdry gift. It cost the eternal son his relationship with his father. Christ's atonement meant that it satisfied God's just wrath by becoming the sacrificial lamb. In the great exchange, God poured out his wrath that your sin rightly deserves. 
All of those sweet enjoyments of sin, the sinless Son of God bore the eternal punishment of His Father. Wrath so great that only the eternal could bear them. This is the great display of God. For God loved the world in this way that He gave up His Son. But here in the text you see that Jesus gave Himself up. Jesus was not coerced into loving you. Jesus wasn't tricked into loving you. The enemy didn't have victory over Jesus. No, biblical love is uncoerced love. Friend, if someone has to make you love, then it's not biblical love. And if someone has to make you love, then you've never known the love of God in Christ. Notice also here what Paul says, that this life that he offered up, giving himself up, Paul describes it as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It was a pleasing aroma. This harkens back to the Old Testament and the Levitical code when they would sacrifice the, on the Day of Atonement. It says that it was a pleasing sacrifice, but you'll find later in the Old Testament that there was never a sacrifice that really pleased God. The psalmist would say, you are not pleased in in sacrifices or I would give them, David writes in Psalm 51. But here he's satisfied. Here God is satisfied. You see, it's only in the cross of Christ that God is ever satisfied. Paul makes clear that the love of God put on display was pleasing to his sight. That the love that Jesus showed was pleasing. And I think the point that Paul is making here is that when we love others as Christ loved us, then we also offer a sweet aroma to God. Not in a sacrificial atoning way, of course. But as we considered last week, the Spirit smiles when we obey. Brothers and sisters, do you love other Christians sacrificially? Biblical love is costly love. Do not misunderstand the exhortation to walk in love. It is not an easy one. It is hard to, there are some people who are hard to love. All right. You might think I'm one of those people that's hard to love. And that's okay. It is. It's hard to love. It takes effort and work to love. Friends, hospitality is costly. Hospitality, lover of strangers, is hard. And these weirdos all up in my house, tramping through my stuff, and you know, that's hard. Hospitality is costly. Discipling a brother is costly. Not only in time, but friends, it takes a toll on your soul. But taking that time to weekly. Or monthly sit down with a brother or sister in Christ and open the Bible and to pour into their life and have them pour into your life for you to pray for them, for them to be praying for you. That is costly. You might even spend countless years investing in them and only see them fall away. Judas is a good example of that. Jesus, Jesus, The eternal Son of God invested three years into that soul. And what did He get for it? 
only to see him fall away. You don't think that hurt? You don't think that came at sacrifice? You don't think that 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 Jesus wasn't displaying ultimate love when he was loving a man he knew was going to betray him? Do you not think that it was love when he would look Peter in the eyes, when he confessed him to be the Christ, and Peter, I won't ever fall away. Jesus knew that he would stab him in the back, not once, but three times. Do you not think that it was costly love when Jesus hung up on the cross so that you could enjoy all the, the heinous sin that you enjoy in your life? Friends, the love is costly. When we pray for the spiritual needs of others, when we actually open the members directory and daily pray and take time away from our entertainment so that we can petition God on behalf of others, that's costly love. You see, so often we define love in emotive terms. And yes, love is an emotion. But it's also action. It's doing something. Exhorting a brother to repentance. That's love. Texting encouraging words to one another. That's love. Uh, Writing an email or a card to, to a brother or sister. And putting some scripture in there and saying this is what you need. Don't listen to your fallen family members. Listen to the words of Christ. When you care for the needs of others by providing for them financially or physically. When you weep with those who weep or rejoice with those who rejoice. Friend, if your brother or sister, rather, if your so-called love cost you nothing, it is not biblical love. We imitate God by relentlessly loving others, relentlessly doing it. We don't give up. When we love, we become imitators of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the point is clear. Children reflect their father. And since God has graciously adopted us into his family, then we should intrinsically desire to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. In our desires to be like him, in our reflection of his holy character, in our new family relationships with other believers, and and most importantly, in this relentless love for one another. In these ways, we reflect the family likeness and confirm in our own hearts that we are, in fact, children of God. As John Calvin helpfully writes, the more extraordinary the discoveries which, which have reached us of the Redeemer's kindness. In other words, the more we think of the cross, he says, the more strongly we are bound to love. Well, let us look to the cross and discover all of God's love for us in Christ and let us go and love one another in costly ways. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that your love would be in our hearts, our lives, and transform us. Help us to know that we are your children. Help us to reflect your character in our lives this week, namely in our love for one another. Now as we sit at the feet of the table, what a reminder of your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.